Hi, <laughs> I'm Allie, and I mean, that was pretty much, now you know who I am. I am Nick and Lori's daughter, so I am a PK, a pastor's kid. <laughs> um, unfortunately, I was not blessed with my dad's public speaking, so <laughs> please bear with me as I'm very, very nervous. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so... Um, uh, again, I am a pastor's kid, and I have been fortunate enough to not um, have the typically portrayed pastor's kid outcome, you know, what you see in the movies mostly, that uh, they struggle because of a super strict life, and then they usually fall into some sort of addiction or something, and then they usually denounce their faith. You know, I've had a pretty low-key life that I felt made my testimony pretty boring, but through some massive life changes and personal counseling, I have come to find out that that's quite the opposite. Um, my parents gave me a wonderful and safe life, but there have been cracks that happen even in the most protective of places. Um, our world and our culture can begin to break down any safety that is built. Sometimes the enemy, his lies, and even our own thoughts are louder than our creator and his, his loving voice. Um, when I started counseling, I learned a lot about trauma and how everybody has it. <laughs> um, there are little T's and big T's, as they put it. Um, I kind of blankly stared, thinking, like, nah, I'm an introverted PK. What trauma could I have? You know? Um, little did I know that my world is going to be rocked. <laughs> um, from little traumas, like being a very shy kindergarten and having to socialize. And in my school, we had a big buddy program, and I had an eighth grader that was my buddy, and I had to read. <laughs> with them at least once a week, and I hated it. <laughs> um, and, you know, there's other little traumas, like getting scolded by my first grade teacher for wearing skirts. Some people might be a little too young to know what those are, but they are skirts in fronts and shorts in the back, and that was not acceptable at a private Christian school. Uh, and then, you know being super young and not being excused to go to the bathroom and accidentally peeing myself in second grade. That might be a little bit more of a big T, but, you know, we'll call it a little T for now. <laughs> um, but, you know, then came the hard part of learning and remembering the big traumas. Our minds can have crazy responses to trauma by locking them away and forgetting so working through those memories can be incredibly excruciating because, for one, you don't want to believe that those happened to you. Um, you know, starting with feeling like I was unloved by my eldest brother because he left our household at a very young age, and I thought it was because of me, and it wasn't, but it hurt. It hurt a lot. Um... You know, and other traumas like having to put our first dog down because he hurt a friend or losing my grandma to cancer. And then coming to being emotionally and mentally manipulated by my first boyfriend that led to struggling with, a, with an eating disorder. And then coming to find out a little later 
recognizing that I was sexually abused by somebody that I thought I was a friend, somebody that I let into my safe space. Um, and that has definitely played a huge part in my marriage and also recognizing that there are things about marriage that I was never prepared for. And weirdly enough, one of the big traumas that I've been struggling with is being a pastor's kid. You know, how does that happen? How, how can that last one be a trauma? You, you know? So through my processing, I've come to realize my faith has been shaken. I've got a lot of reason for it to be. Um, but it's mainly in that last one. In my anger and hurt, I've come to the conclusion that I'll never lose faith in Christ, but I've lost faith in his people, in the Christian culture. With the culture, there comes so many expectations, but even more so when you are a pastor and his family. We were expected to be knowledgeable about the Bible and to stay awake in church as young kids. We were expected to behave and never run in the, Lord, in the house of the Lord. We were expected to serve in any way possible, whether we felt led to or not. We were expected to give up time with our Father if someone was in need, even if we needed him more. We were expected to be okay with him being called to a horrific accident and him coming back unfazed. He was expected to be strong, to be the caretaker, that he didn't need help decompressing. A pastor is expected to take care of a church and its people, and to his family, it can feel like he has to do it alone so that he takes the burden from us. We were expected to be okay with empty promises of longevity in a ministry dreamed of for years. We were expected to have faith and to continue on. We were expected to not have any doubt. And we were expected to be okay with abandonment time and time again. And through all of this, my dad continued on. He has kept fighting the good fight, a bit worn, but still fighting. So why should I stop? I have inherited his fierce loyalty and my mom's fiery nature to protect. So I've wanted to go to war for my dad in his heart and for my mom in her peace. But through my parents, I have seen Christ's calm, his persistence persistence in calling us, that he cares and that he carries us, that we are all very broken people that will hurt, that will even come to hurt people in our lives, that we can be hard to love for some people, but never for him. My life has truly been filled with God's work, and it has held as many highs as it has lows. My life would be much different if I didn't rely on his redeeming grace. His love for me is astounding. You know, I'm, I'm a very, very broken person with wounds that need healing, and I'm learning to trust again. I'm learning that even in my panic and my anguish, my peace is being perfected. I'm learning to listen until he is the only voice I hear. Um, that my past shame and struggles will never separate me from his love. And I pray that through my story that you may behold him and know that you are whole and you are beloved. Thank you so much. I'll take it, yeah. Thank you so much, Ali. 
That was beautiful. A beautiful example of just the brokenness of the world that we live in, but yet the hope and the peace that we have in Christ and the difference that it makes to have a family who knows and loves him, um, to be that example and just to uh, see the spirit work in your life. So thank you, Allie. Thank you for sharing your story with us that we could all learn from it. I'm sure there are a lot in this room um, who could relate and who are praying for that same peace on their life. Thank you. Well, hey, we're going to transition into our teaching time here. Um, we have been working our way through the series that we're calling Dear Friends and Fellow Workers, going through three different books. We went through the book of Philemon. Now we are in the book of Titus, and then eventually we'll get to the book of Jude. But we are still working our way through the book of Titus, where the Apostle Paul is writing to this younger pastor named Titus, um, who was sent to one of the most inhospitable parts of the world for the Christian faith, and that is the island of Crete, an island known for its debauchery, for its lawlessness, um, for people just being rebellious and sinful and wild. And we're going to be in chapter 3 today, so I'll invite you to find your way there, because I want us to just read uh, the few verses that we're going to look at today so that we can just get a framework of what we're going to be dealing with, um, because we're only going to be looking at two different verses today. Uh, but it is a topic that we're going to enter into that'll be a little difficult, and that'll be a little complicated, and that we're going to have to really unpack. And so I want to just start off reading this right off the bat so that you see here what we're working with. Because, like I said, this is going to be a topic um, that will be maybe a little difficult to address. Because what Titus is addressing here, what the Apostle Paul is talking about, is Titus's need to instruct these new Christians on the subject of obeying and submitting to authority. Right? So we are going to talk today about politics and authority. What a fun topic. Uh, what an awkward topic right before the 4th of July. Um, literally, the day that we're celebrating as a nation, our rejection of British authority. Um, obviously, there's going to be some nuance here, um, because the U.S. is pretty punk rock. Um, but we're going to see here, um, how are we going to address this? And what do we do with passages like Titus chapter 3? And so we're reading these first two verses. Words will be on your screen. I'll invite you to find your way there uh, in your own Bibles or on your phones as well. But here it is. Titus chapter 3, verse 1. With the Apostle Paul writing to this young pastor says, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always gentle toward everyone. All right, pretty simple enough, but really it's that first sentence there. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities. That is the most difficult to us. Okay, now show of hands, how many of you are like really into politics? Like you love watching the debates, you love talking about politics, you love talking about some of the different controversial things that happen in our nation. Show of hands, who likes this sort of stuff, right? Anybody? Only Chris, Mulcahy's, Logan likes it, okay. How many of you, uh, when the topic of government authority comes up, there's just something in you that cringes, you don't want to talk about it. When it comes up in the workplace, when it comes up at the dinner table, that's just like you're finding a way to quickly shift the subject. How many of you are like that? Cookie's hand went up quick. Um, you don't love it. How many of you are a little uncomfortable we're talking about government authority this morning? Anyone? No one? All right. You guys are just apathetic to everything. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> well... As we've talked about for the last month, Titus has this difficult task of instructing all these new Christians in these new churches on how to look less like a Cretan and more like Jesus, right? This is a big job as he's laying out what discipleship looks like. And one of the things that we've been talking about for the last few chapters is that following Jesus 
should result in changing every single aspect of our lives. Every single aspect of our lives. And it was C.S. Lewis who famously said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun is risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Right? That as we've walked our way through Titus, we've seen instructions on hospitality, self-discipline, violence, greed, drunkenness, family life, um, how to function in a church, what the leaders are supposed to be like. We've seen instructions to like specific age groups and gender groups. Um, and Paul is making it clear that no part of our lives are outside of being changed by God's grace, including this part of our lives that relates to authority, that relates to rulers over us. And this is important for the Cretans to be taught here, because on the island of Crete, they were also a very independent, some even said a lawless group, where historians say that Crete was a place where there was almost constant rebellion against authority. Um, there was almost in every single town kind of its own independent government that was fighting against the others for control. And any time there was attempted to be an entire government over the entire island, there would be an insurrection, there would be rebellion, and nobody would follow laws or rules on the island, even if they were in there. That Crete was essentially like the wild, wild west when it came to submitting to authority. Um, and we talked about a few weeks ago that one of those central instructions that the Apostle Paul told Titus to teach the Cretans is that the way that they live isn't just for them, but it actually reflects Jesus to the world, that the way that they live actually affects Jesus' reputation. And so what he is saying here, when it comes to this reputation for Cretans of just being rebellious and going against authority, is what he's saying is you have to recognize that all of your life affects Jesus' reputation, including your relationship to authority. Right? That before you get to the point where you're able to explain who Jesus is and what he's done, people can see you. Um, they can see how you are in your family. They can see how you are at work. They can see your politics. They can see the way that you relate to the government. And what the message that Paul is telling Titus to teach these Cretans over and over again is, is that your faith is public. And so because of that, it must be in line with who Christ is that our faith is just about as public as Jesus' crucifixion. It's out there for everybody to see. And that involves the way that we interact with authority, the way that we interact with rulers and authorities. Now, this is a difficult passage, um, just as it is. But the interesting thing is that for the last three years, since 2020, and we all first heard the word coronavirus, uh, we've had an interesting spotlight on this passage for three years, haven't we? Um, many people have turned to this verse in the last three years. Has anyone in the last three years on the topic of just COVID, have you heard this verse from Titus 3? You've seen it. You've seen people address it. You've seen people go to it. Um, a lot of people have gone to this verse. Um, and one of the difficult things with that is that Oftentimes, when we are in kind of a crisis situation, we're always trying to play catch up with our Bible interpretation. And oftentimes, we don't go to passages like this until we're already in a crisis. We're trying to figure out what it means. We're trying to interpret it. And the struggle is that then we are trying to interpret complicated biblical themes in environments in which it's very easy to react emotionally. And so this verse has been kind of cherry-picked and thrown out there a lot over the last three years. Oh, just remember Titus 3. 
God bless you, Cassie. Um, the issue then is that since this verse was often just cherry-picked and thrown out there, is what would typically happen when the Bible is presented before us, what we always want to do is just come under it, and we say, okay, this is God's word, we're going to obey it. But oftentimes, because it was maybe used to enforce some political recommendations, a lot of people, instead of really like digging in to see what Titus chapter 3 said or what this meant for us, a lot of us then have just said, well, we don't like Titus chapter 3. Um, and a lot of people for the last three years have spent more time trying to figure out how not to follow Titus 3 rather than actually understand it. Um, and what typically happens then is once Titus 3 is kind of thrown out in the wrong situation is oftentimes then we would throw out verses like Acts chapter 5 and verse 27 where the apostles, they're in trouble for preaching the gospel. They're before the Sanhedrin and the high priest who said, hey, I told you, I gave you strict orders not to teach in Jesus' name. You're continuing doing it. And then Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. Right? If you heard that one then thrown out in the last three years. And that's true. That's in the Bible as well. And so over the last three years, we've had this interesting tension where it's almost like we feel like we have to make a choice. Are we like Titus 3 Christians or are we Acts chapter 5 Christians? You know, I will obey God, not man. Or, hey, submit to authorities. And we've had this tension where people have decided if they're Acts chapter 5 Christians or Titus 3 Christians. Um, Spoiler alert, when we get to the end of this, I don't think there should be a difference here. Um, But we have to recognize this is kind of a difficult topic. This is a difficult situation to get through, that we are still trying to figure out what it means for us as citizens of heaven to live, citizens here, under the rulers and authorities that we have. It really is a difficult topic. And one of the important things I think we always need to do uh, when it comes to these kind of topics is not just base our entire understanding of them off one or two verses, but we really need to see the sum of what God has revealed on it. Um, And the first thing that I want you to know is that there are actually three verses in the New Testament that are almost all identical in this way. There are two other verses I just want to show you guys that are very similar um, to Titus 3. How did I mess up that citation? But that is Titus 3 that we've just read. Uh, But there are two other verses, Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, 13. And so I just want to read these other two passages for us so that we get a picture of what this is saying. I'm just going to read them with very little commentary that there are two other passages that are almost identical to what we've read here in Titus. Romans 13, uh, beginning in verse 1 there, says this, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you'll be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. Do we always feel that way? But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. And we have 1 Peter chapter 2, which says... Verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as that supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Fear God. 
honor the emperor. So these three passages all seem to be saying essentially the same thing, right? Okay, it seems pretty clear from there. But know that as we read these passages, we also have to remember, like from the book of Acts, that the men writing these two books, Peter and Paul, they're writing these letters essentially from their prison cells as well, about to be executed for disobeying the government, right? That Paul and Peter were arrested for political insurrection. Um, This is true. The very people who wrote these passages, um, they eventually were arrested because of being a threat to the politics of their day. Now, I don't think they're hypocrites. I don't think they're um, writing this and living in another way. But I think we have to take a look at this and understand that and know it might be a little more complicated, that we're going to have to take a bit of a survey of the whole Bible to know, like, okay, these three passages, they're in the Bible. We're not just to argue against them, find ways around them. They're absolutely God's word here. But the very men who wrote this, they didn't seem to have the greatest relationship with authority all the time, right? And so I think what we're going to have to do is we're really going to have to take a bit of a dive here, a bit of a survey to human authority and understand what God is showing here, that there seem to be some exceptions, but yet there seems to be this instruction here. And as I said, we want to get a picture of what God has revealed about authority, not just a few verses. And so in order to understand that, um, from the very beginning, the framework is we understand authority. Um, Who would we affirm is the ultimate authority? Cover all of it. Starts with a G. Yeah, God. Okay. So just from the very foundation, we understand that God is the creator. He's the ruler of all creation, right? Um, I don't have much of an argument for you on that because I think we're on the same page, hopefully. Um, The first most important thing to recognize is that God is creator. All authority comes from him. He's the ruler of all of creation. But one of the things we have to recognize is that God does give humans authority that god's rule over the world is actually mediated through his image god does give humans authority how far into the bible do you think we need to go to find humans with authority page one i gave it to you there as well but in page one of the bible at the creation of humanity god said in genesis chapter one Let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness. So the image of God is something that's been talked about a lot, books and books and books written about it. Um, And for the last thousand years, Christians have really focused on the likeness aspect. Um, You know, yeah, like we have logic and creativity and rationality, like aspects of God's character that we have that is like. But this image of God word is really important because this image, it's it's a status It's a job. It's essentially a position that the word image for the Jews, they had always kind of understood it as ruler in place of God or ruler employed by God here. Um, Because the word that is used for image of God is the word selim. It's a soft T, tongue at the teeth there. Selim, which is usually interpreted throughout the Old Testament as image can be idol, statue, can be physical representation. So when Daniel was told to bow down before the image of Nebuchadnezzar, it was the Selim of Nebuchadnezzar there. Yep, and them too, not just him. And we see plainly in Genesis 1 here, so this is God made mankind in our image. And we see why he made us 
in his image as well. Where he said, let us make mankind in our image and likeness. And in Genesis 1.26, it says, so that they may rule. Right? Here's the purpose of you being made in the image of God. So that they may rule. And then when God gave humans their first job, the first commission was this. In verse 28 of Genesis 1, where it said, and we have the words on the screen there, that God blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, and every other creature on the ground. And so God made people to have authority on his behalf, to be his image, to be essentially his employees here ruling on his behalf. And what this looked like then when you get to page two of the Bible is essentially Adam and Eve, like farming and raising animals, ruling over creation on God's behalf here, given this title, given this position to be God's rulers on earth. This was the task that they were given. I mean, this is essentially still our task. It's more complicated now, though I am still trying to subdue my backyard um, sometimes more successfully, um, but I try to do my best. I try to mow, I try to water, I try to control the little yellow flowers that are really pretty, um, and the, but are all over the place. Um, but the reality is that what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to just maximize the grass's efficiency so that the grass can truly thrive. And if I don't rule over and subdue my yard, what's going to happen is the thorns and the thistles, all the other weeds will take over, and eventually there won't actually be much life. There won't actually be a green, beautiful yard. And if you think about this in the context of farming, then you can recognize that if you just kind of leave nature as it wants to be, um, you might get the odd fruit and vegetable here or there. Um, but for the most part, the thorns and thistles tend to kind of take over. They tend to kind of make a mess. But if we rule, subdue creation, I mean, you can have a whole orchard. You could have a whole farm. You could feed and nourish life. And God essentially has made humans in his image to be in this way. Because God is the one who did this. God is the one who ordered creation in order to sustain life. He's the one who brought life. And we're to kind of mimic him in that way. Of being generous, of being kind, of being gracious, of maximizing life on earth here. And we're supposed to do that as kind of an image of him, but also in the way that he does it, right? Because we know who God is. God is gracious. God is kind. God is generous. God is gentle. He's very patient with us. And so we're given this position to rule in place of him, to be an image of him, but also to be like him in the process. And so anytime God's people are to have any authority or power or influence, we're to rule in the same way that God rules. Not, you know, for our own purpose, not for our own glory, but for his purpose, for his will, for his glory. So it was in page one that humans got that authority. How long do you think it took that to get messed up. (laughs) Just page two, Um, right? We know where the story goes. Adam and Eve take the fruit, knowledge of good and evil for themselves. The very first family of Adam and Eve has a murder in the family, right? Cain and Abel, we know that story. And if you continue on, it doesn't take you very long before you get to Genesis chapter 11, where you have the first kind of recorded, organized city. You have the first place where you see humans really having authority and essentially what most say was the first government, and that was Babel. Uh, How does Babel go? Not very well. Thumbs down. Ben, you're like, ah, they built a big thing. That's cool. Well, not necessarily. But what you had was God's image bearers. They were supposed to image God. They're supposed to glorify God. 
And then they wanted to build the Tower of Babel. And what did they say? Like, let's build this to make a name for ourselves. And you have those who are supposed to image God, supposed to glorify Him for His will and His purpose, building this for self-glorification. Right? Instead of honoring the Creator, honoring themselves. So that's a really bad start there. That's the kind of the first recorded government that we have. From there, you don't have to go very far to get to Egypt, right? And Egypt is kind of the first superpower recorded in the Bible. It's really the first bad government. Um, we have the Pharaoh ruling over it. And the Pharaohs at that time considered themselves to be gods. Um, if Pharaoh wanted a pyramid built, he got it built. If you didn't want to work on the pyramid, tough. You don't have the choice to submit to authority. You're going to be working on it. Right? So they had great unemployment rates in Egypt there. Um, but God's people initially go down to Egypt in order to seek help. Right? They had a famine in the land. And so they go down looking for food. Pharaoh has food. They're very productive. They get fed. It goes well at first. Great. That's a good purpose of this. Get fed. But then what happens is Pharaoh enslaves the Hebrew people, takes control of them instead of helping them, And then Pharaoh doesn't like how many of them there are. They're having too many babies. And Pharaoh says, hey, if you guys have any more babies, I'm going to kill them. And then you know the story with Moses being sent down a river, being saved here. And in Egypt, you have essentially everything that could go wrong with human authority, right? You have slavery, greed, deification of the leader. And instead of like maximizing life, you have Pharaoh just killing babies here. It's about as nasty as it can get. And the core issue with that, we see there in Exodus chapter 5. The core issue with Egypt and Pharaoh is when Moses comes and he tells Pharaoh, hey, you are not glorifying God. You need to let God's people go. This is what Pharaoh responds with. He says, who is the Lord? Who is God? Right? This is in Exodus chapter 5. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. So you have this human ruler who's supposed to be ruling like God, for God, doesn't even know God, doesn't even know who he is. And so Pharaoh here instead thinks he's the ultimate authority. Thinks he is the one that all this is for. It's completely forgotten the purpose of being the image of God. And Egypt here is really one of the first good pictures we have of humanity just completely off the rails, just not where it was supposed to be. So you have this first kind of organized rule of Babel, glorifying themselves. Then you have this first superpower of Egypt, really making it about themselves. Um, And obviously you know where the Egypt story goes. God says, okay, if you think you're so tough, he ends up winning. And so by the time we get to Jesus then, Jesus comes, and Jesus is the image of God that humans never were. Um, Jesus is able to image God in a way that everyone else had failed to be. And you see as you work your way through the Gospels, um, we talked about it just a few months ago, that especially Matthew's Gospel, it begins with a genealogy to show Jesus' authority, his connection to David as king. And over and over through the Gospels, Jesus is actually using like authoritative political language. He's saying things like, the kingdom of God is at hand. And he begins his ministry that way. And we have to recognize that even though Jesus was, was teaching all these things like, love your neighbor, blessed are the poor, um, about loving enemies, what he's talking about there is imaging God properly. And we have to recognize that Jesus didn't get killed for saying, love your neighbors. Right? 
Jesus got killed for going against the authority in his day. He told the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you guys are fakes, you guys are liars, you're taking advantage of the poor. And then he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, was proclaimed Messiah by a really large crowd. Okay, that's a, that's a pretty big stunt. Another time he went right into the temple and flipped the tables and said, you've turned my father's house into a den of robbers. Essentially, he's like marching down to the White House and saying, you're all crooks, right? This is a big statement from Jesus. Um, it's not just that Jesus was the nice guy who got killed by the mean guys. You know, he was just teaching love. No, he was saying this authority is wrong here. And that's one of the reasons that when they crucified Jesus, they put a crown of thorns on his head, right? To mock him for claiming to be king. And the stick that they beat him with, they put in his hand. So it'd be like a scepter. And they were mocking his claims to authority. And so on page one of the Bible, we saw God made humans in his image to rule on his behalf. And then you have Jesus at the cross, the true ruler, laying his life down for these corrupt humans, right? This theme is all throughout the Bible. And it's tragic, but this is essentially, I mean, just one of the big effects of sin that is so present in the Gospels. And then after Jesus defeats sin and death at the cross, he has the great commission, right? That he sends the disciples out on a commission. And look at the message there where he says, all authority on heaven and earth is mine. Therefore, go and make disciples, right? Spreading my kingdom to the ends of the earth, Jesus says. And so do you see the thread of authority all throughout? This is a big theme throughout the Bible. That Christianity essentially is unavoidably political. It is unavoidably going to affect our relationship with authority. And this is one of the reasons that the early Christians were such a problem for the Roman Empire, right? It wasn't just that they were meeting together and having these love feasts and, and loving one another. It's that the fundamental message of the Christians in the first century was there's a new king. And he's stronger and more powerful than you Romans here. And you can just imagine how a Roman person or how the Roman government would have heard that, right? Because they weren't leading a big rebellion, but the Caesar um, really had no limit to his authority, that the leader of the Roman government viewed themselves as God walking on earth. And so the early Christians, they were really viewed as a political problem because one of the things a Roman citizen had to do every so often was go to the temple, pinch off a little bit of incense, and sprinkle it and say, praise Caesar, Caesar is Lord. And the Christians at the time are saying, well, like, no, like, yeah, you're Lord, you have authority, but there's actually one Lord. And so the first Christians failed to recognize Caesar in every single aspect of their life because they could only have one Lord. And this was a big problem for the Roman government there. This is why every single one of the disciples, well, everyone but one was put to death by the government then, right? All except um, the Apostle John, though not without trying. Historical accounts say that they tried to boil John alive. Some say God just miraculously saved him. Some say it's like they filled the pot too full, and then he put out the water, and he ended up just getting really exfoliated. But either way, all of the apostles were essentially sentenced to death because of the way that they related to authority. right? And we already read from guys like Peter and Paul. They were both executed being Christians, okay? 
So what do we do then with authority? We see kind of how human authority was given by God. We see just kind of this messy relationship here. What do we do with it? What do we do with it? Because Peter and Paul are still instructing. Submit. They're still instructing. It's in place by God. And there doesn't seem to be much qualifications here of knowing like, okay, well, like you only submit when they're good guys and when they're bad guys. Considering who Peter and Paul were under, do they have good rulers or bad leaders? Pretty bad, right? But yet still, Paul said, there's no authority except that which God has established. That the authorities that exist have been established by God. And he says that the one in authority is God's servant for good. God's servant for good. And I think this is really key to understand because who did God appoint as his authority on earth? Humans. What do we, what do we believe about humans? We believe that we are fallen, sinful creatures, right? That some do a pretty good job, some do okay, and some do really, really bad like Pharaoh, okay? Um, but the ones that Paul and Peter experienced, they did a pretty bad job, but yet still Paul is writing and saying that they are still appointed by God. That God actually is the one who appointed fallen people. And so to rebel against any authority, Paul is saying it's to rebel against God's instituted authority. God's instituted authority. And I know this sounds like really tricky, like, well, what do we do with it then? Does that mean that God is like in support of like bad policies or in support of wicked rulers or God is like helping wicked rulers? And of course, we wouldn't acknowledge that. One of the things that we see throughout the Bible is God actually using the evil and the wicked of this world to accomplish his purposes over and over again. Doesn't mean he's in support of what they're doing. Doesn't mean he did what they were doing. But he uses the wicked to accomplish his purposes. In Jeremiah chapter 27, God brought you know, the foreign ruler of Babylon in to invade Israel and to take his people away into exile. And here in Jeremiah 27, he says, Now I will give all your countries into the hands of my servant, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is the bad guy in like every VeggieTales, right? He's not my servant, but yet God still here calls him my servant. And he says, I will make even the wild animals subject to him. So God can and does employ corrupt, horrible rulers to accomplish his purposes. Right? And even though Nebuchadnezzar does terrible things, God is still saying, I'm using that to bring about my purpose. I'm using this to move towards my redemptive purposes. Right? That God even orchestrates the evil to accomplish his will. And here he used Nebuchadnezzar to invade Israel, to take his people away into exile. And we do have to kind of wrestle with that. Now, the, interest, <laughs> the interesting thing then is Nebuchadnezzar, I think it's too big of a head. And how does he take Nebuchadnezzar down then when it's time for Nebuchadnezzar to get out of the way? Well, God raises up another corrupt leader. Persia comes in, invades Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, well, now Persia is in power. You can read about it in the story of Esther. Okay, then he raises up the Greek empire to come in, take out Persia. Okay, the Greeks get really full of themselves. Well, here come the Romans. And over and over again, you see God, even though these corrupt evil leaders are there, that God exerts his power even through these other human authorities, right? That God actually gave his power often to these bad governments in order to get to his redemptive purposes. That God essentially gave his power in order to show his power. Which if you just stop and consider what Jesus did on the cross, 
giving up his life to show his power, laying himself down to show his true power. This is the way God just seems to work, right? And so essentially, when it comes to submitting to authority, and we have all these whatabouts, what about this, what about this, what if this? I think what Paul is saying here is, especially to the Cretans on the island of Crete, he's saying, hey, even if they are bad, corrupt leaders, rebellion essentially is the wrong move. Being rebellious, just revolting, I think what Paul is saying here is, that shouldn't be your first default response. But that doesn't necessarily show faith in God's sovereign plan. Right? And I know a lot of us wrestle with those words, or we wish that he hadn't written those words. We wish he had just told us, like, you know, submit, accept, hear, and then just go for it. Um, but I think what God is showing us through the scriptures is that we really have to wrestle with these things. That it isn't always going to be this easy thing of we know clearly when to submit, we know when to obey, that we're going to have to wrestle with God's sovereign plan, God being in control, and yet the evil that we see. And Paul was writing to a group of Christians who were really struggling with corrupt leadership. Essentially, he's saying, hey, these are going to be difficult decisions that you will have to wrestle with and make as you follow here. I think what he's saying really is that the fundamental kind of default that we're to have in the face of authority, is to honor the structures of authority because they are an expression of God's authority and that they are a tool of God. And Paul writes this even in the face of a lot of corruption. So this is something to recognize. But as we've seen, a few examples that we've already gone through, that there are cases, like with Daniel, um, like with Queen Esther, you could even go to like Joseph in Egypt, where God's people are actually given the ability to participate and to change, and they're given power and authority in some of these corrupt governments. And then the message of all of those stories is definitely not just go with the flow, but it's to then rule rightly as an image of God. It's then to use that power, use that influence, to leverage it towards God's kingdom, God's ethics, towards God's purposes. And you see example after example of that in the Scripture leveraging it for God. And I think that's what he was saying here when he said, you know, be ready to do whatever is good. That when it comes to submitting to authority, are we having that positive mindset in thinking of how we can do something good, not just reacting to whatever bad is coming our way. But also I think we see plenty of examples throughout the scripture of when authority structures are, are so corrupt and so wrong, just like with Exodus Um, Just like with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? That God's people are called to resist and to say, hey, this is wrong. We'll resist this. And if the authorities are going to demand an allegiance that will compromise our allegiance to Christ, then it's like, okay, well, I'll resist and humbly accept the consequences. Okay, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're like, yeah. We're just not going to play your game here. You're going to kill us? whoop de doo You're still not our king. And this is the message of the first century Christians over and over again. They didn't start a revolution here, but they were not intimidated when their allegiance was questioned in order to pull them off of Christ. In those hard situations, they said, sorry, I'm not going to follow you in that way. Sorry, Rome, I'm not going to say Caesar is Lord. 
If there are consequences, so be it. You're still not the king. There's still someone more powerful than you. I'm pretty sure this is what the Bible is trying to tell us, that there are these cases, if it's going to question our allegiance to Christ, and if it is going to be hurting others in that way, if we can't leverage the authority that we have for the interests and the ethics of God's kingdom, then yeah, we can critique, we can resist. We have to accept the consequences, though. I think we have to see. I think we have to see here. Um, But that's definitely something that we have to recognize, especially in the Old Testament. As you see over and over in the Old Testament, um, God's people, they're put in positions of power in corrupt governments. They're put in positions of power in really messed up authority structures. And oftentimes Christians today, we're put in situations where the authority enforced on us does not feel comfortable to us. It does not seem clear of how we can follow God in this way. And I think we have to look to the examples of of Joseph, of Daniel, of Esther, of even the Apostle Paul, where Paul wanted to make it to Rome. He was imprisoned, and he said, "Uh -uh, I'm a Roman citizen. You have to give me a fair trial. Boom, he's getting his ticket to Rome, right? Um, To borrow from the great theologian Stefan Fertig, what if this corrupt government is not a setback, but a setup? Right? Like, what if God is doing something in this situation in order to accomplish his will and his purpose? And we have to recognize with us, as there are times when we're going to face authority structures that might not feel perfect, might not feel like something that we get to push up against, whether it be work, whether it be our boss, those kind of situations, or school, we have to recognize we're not slaves like in Egypt that we do have a say, that we do have options. As American citizens, we do get to recognize that we're citizens, we're not subjects, and so we do get to play a part. We have influence, we have power within the authority structure here. A lot of people will point to the fact that in the interest of Romans chapter 13, um, we don't just obey humans in authority, but actually in our nation, our ultimate authority are some documents um, and if people are not following those documents, then in the interest of Romans 13, we're able to say to the people in power, hey, you are not following the authority. But actually, the authority in our country are these documents. And so we don't want to just make it all about being a good American here, but we have to recognize where we live, this is going to have to be applied in a really contextual way. Okay, well, what is this authority? What is it that we're living into here? But that's this first message here that Paul gives to Titus to remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, right? And so we see, okay, there are cases it's going to go against the authority of God that we would humbly resist. But what we have to recognize is that we can't always tell if God is doing something in that. Anyway, that's going to be a little more difficult than just throwing out Acts chapter 5 or throwing out Titus chapter 3. So that's just that first section. Now we're getting through. Remind people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient here. But then he says, be ready to do whatever is good. And I already mentioned that. I really do think that this is a proactive approach, looking for opportunities to be the image of God. That we are to look for opportunities to proactively seek the interests and the ethics of God's kingdom. Right? Uh, Reactionary politics, reactionary faith, is usually never a good thing because our emotions make it really difficult to understand what the Bible is saying in those situations. 
Um, but also, I think this is a call for maybe some of us really apathetic Christians who would just say that, like, you know, politics, authority, that's just kind of a distraction. I'm just focused on the gospel. I just stay out of that. I don't enter into those conversations. Um, I don't think we can just be known for what we don't do. It's like, yeah, you know, a lot of Christians are really mean politically or a lot of Christians are, you know, really off track politically. So I just don't do anything. I don't think the instruction here is be known by not doing anything or not taking a stance on anything. (laughs) I think he's saying be ready to do whatever is good, right? This is a proactive approach, proactive approach, right? Don't be known for what you don't do or what you don't care about, right? That essentially, as he said in Peter, um, that live your life in such a way that people will look at you and the way that you are living, and they will actually look foolish for going against you, right? Because you were attempting to accomplish good this entire time. But then, of course, if you're ready to do what is good, you know, like what do you do when the pressure on us is to do something bad? And I think, again, we kind of refer to number one there. Like, okay, if the pressure, or not number one, but like number three and four, if the pressure on us is to do something that's not good, okay, well, we can critique, we can not obey, but the message in Titus chapter 3 is also still, even in the face of pressuring bad things, we can't slander. We must be peaceable and considerate, always gentle towards everyone. Even in the face of evil, even in the face of authority that is not following God. We can't slander. We must be peaceable, considerate, gentle towards everyone. And I think the ways that we do this, one, I would say it's by being hard on ideas and soft on people. Because here is what I typically see happen, is we tend to fall into one of two camps. That is not this camp. We tend to either be really hard on ideas, and so in the same process, we end up being hard on people. Or we tend to be really soft on people, and so in the process, we're like really soft on ideas. And how this typically plays out is, say, you know, you're strongly against some kind of political idea, or you're strongly against something, um, and you have these you know, really strong feelings against it. You have these really strong arguments against it. Then you interact with someone in real life who believes that, supports that, voted for that, whatever it might be. And it's like we say the exact same things in conversation with that person as like we see on Twitter here or there. Or we interact with people in person in the same way that we would just go against these hard ideas, right? Like someone who is believing an idea, who is led in a certain direction, and we just come against them with the same verbiage, with that same language that we learn from the internet. And I would say that's not very gentle, not always very considerate, not always very peaceable. But then at the same time, some of us can then fall on the side of wanting to be loving, wanting to be gentle for people. And so it's like, hey, we know someone who like supports that idea or who has done that in the past, and we just want to be kind and we want to be gentle to them. And like they're really nice. And so like how can we go against this idea really harshly if like these really nice people believe it you know and i hear this way too often and we have to recognize that nice people believe a lot of really bad things that that has nothing to do with an idea being evil or not and because we want to be soft on people we end up being dangerously soft on ideas dangerously soft on destructive evil ideas right and we have to recognize that the world tells us you can't be both hard on ideas and soft on people. The world will tell us, no, nope, you've got to be hard on everybody because you're going to be hard on their ideas. Or, hey, we just need to be nice every single time. The world tells us we can't do both. I think the Bible says otherwise. I really do. That we must be hard on these ideas but soft on people. 
right? And if to disagree with someone's choice or someone's belief is inherently unloving, then, well, Jesus is unloving, I guess, if that's what we were to say. Um, but it's not. That this is a principle I think we can live by, like in person and online, when it comes to these different debates where all of a sudden the Bible is going to be slung out and used either to go against authority, to defend authority. Hard on ideas, soft on people there. And I think we also have to recognize, as we're just trying to be considerate, gentle, peaceable, that if someone does have the boldness to share like their politics with us, with us in person, see that as an opportunity. I mean, see that. See that opportunity to share, truly, what we believe, but in a gentle way. Share our idea that, like, hey, if I don't agree with this, well, you know, I know who the ultimate authority is. And we can have those conversations. We can give those answers, especially if it's something that definitely goes against God's ethics, God's ways, that goes against humans imaging God. We can be hard on that and speak clearly about that, but as gently as possible. As gently as possible. Because when it comes to this passage, or even just all the discussions that I know are raging in your mind right now, as we, I would say we're in a political season, but I feel like we always are now, that as we think through these issues, we got to think through Titus 3 and the instruction here. And we have to remember that we are to be wise as servants, serpents, but harmless as doves. Right? We can be wise against these ideas, but we can be gentle to those who oftentimes are even just victims of it. And I think at the end of the day, we really have to view authority. We have to view government. We have to view people over us. We have to view corruption through the lens of Romans 8.38, right? We have to view people through the Romans 8.38 lens. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, political or otherwise, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? That we have to view people through this lens. That God, his love, is not separated from people by bad politics. That bad corrupt authorities can't even thwart his plan. And we have to see that really it's kind of in the darkness and it's when humans are completely off the rails that the gospel kind of gets to shine. Um, that's where the gospel really does its thing. That's where Jesus really shows his power. It's people who have all kind of wacko ideas or government authority that seem to just be so powerful nobody could stand against it. That's where Jesus shows his strength off the most. And I think we do have a lot of Christians who don't necessarily believe that the gospel is the good news of the power of salvation, that God's grace does change people in and out. And I think we have to trust in what the Holy Spirit can do in God's grace to change lives more than we trust human authority. I think we see people who maybe have submitted to other authorities or to different political ideas that we would just say are absolutely evil. We have to view them through the Romans 8.38 lens. That if Cretans can be changed by God's grace to look like Christ, I think anybody can even corrupt rulers, even people that go along with it. That the Holy Spirit can even change someone's politics. And that's something we might not necessarily believe, but I think we must trust that. To view our world through Romans 8.38 here, that the grace of God is sufficient for each and every situation. So now, let's turn to God in prayer as so we continue on in worship.
So, Father God, as we continue to try to navigate what it looks like for us to be citizens of your kingdom, but yet citizens here, um, where you have chosen to have us birthed and have us live in this life, um, we just ask that you would help us to discern the spirits. Would you help us to discern in our day-to-day lives which direction you're calling us, God? Um, Which interests do we get to play a role in that will advance your kingdom, um, your purposes, your principles? How can we participate um, in authority in our family, in our workplace, in our school, or in um, the government in which we sit under? How can we participate in such a way as to advance your kingdom and your ethics and your purposes? Help us to see what that means. Um, But God, as we move through this world, we just know that there is no promise of any human ruler being the perfect image of you. And that's why you sent your son to show us truly who you are. You're the one who laid his life down. Give us life. So we just thank you. We thank you for promising to be with us even to the end of the age that as we face rulers who might be okay, leaders who do a pretty good job, and as we face some that are so far from what you imagine, that that we would be comforted by knowing that your spirit is with us and that in the end, nothing can separate us from your love. That you are the ultimate authority above powers and principalities, even beyond even the ones that we can see. And so would you help us to be people who trust in you, that our house would be built on that rock. And so Jesus, now, as we just consider what you've done for us, as we just consider our desire to be a people fully just in submission to you, we turn to you in worship. So Spirit, would you be ministering in this time to bring us more fully under submission to your will, that we would be agents of of your change in your kingdom here on this earth. So Jesus, we love you. Now we just turn to you in praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray.
situations where you'll feel the tug. Are you going to be an Acts 5 Christian or are you going to be a Titus 3 Christian? I would encourage you, be both. And to just pray that prayer. Sing that song that we just sang. God, be my vision. Help me to see how to walk this out. And now as you go, will you go with the words of Matthew chapter 28 as a benediction? And Jesus came to them and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. So grace and peace, Common Ground Church. Thank you for being here. Have a wonderful fourth.